Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance and Data Facts. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We're in for a fun treat, a little bit of a different twist when you talk about someone who's not only a change maker, but really working heavily in the human trafficking space, not just here in the United States, but around our world. So uh, really amazing conversation. You are in for a treat. We have Victor Betros. He's a founding director for the Human Trafficking Institute and also the co-author with Gary Haugen, The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. And so, uh, Victor, let's start out with a simple question. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here with you. You are here in Memphis, but uh, like I said in the onset, you travel all over the world, so you are a very busy man. We appreciate you being here in our city and uh, sitting down with us. The fun of Changemakers is we get to kind of share a little bit of your life story, and then we'll dive heavily, obviously, into the work you're doing. But for starters, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. So uh, my parents grew up in Egypt and then immigrated to the U.S., and I ended up uh, uh, being born and raised in Dallas, Texas. And so that's where I grew up. And... I have a younger sister uh, who's about five and a half years younger than me, and, and that's, that was our kind of home, and we had a great experience growing up in Dallas. So did you grow up as Dallas Cowboys fans and Texas Rangers fans? And, yes. Uh, okay, there We're we go. Still diehard Cowboys fans. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yeah. I like that. That's good. I, I, <laughs> I you know, spent uh, 14 years in DFW, so yeah. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan too. Uh, talk about, you know, with your parents, obviously with the Egyptian roots, how much of that culture has translated into, obviously, your upbringing and any traditions? I mean, kind of mm. walk us through some of those nuances. So uh, my parents uh, were uh, Christians in Egypt growing up there, and so that was a, a certainly a countercultural thing for them. And so as a result, their faith community was very, very important to them. And so um, I think faith and education were kind of two big emphases in their uh, community growing up in Egypt, and I think those were probably the two gifts that they felt were most important to give to their children. So even as I was growing up, there was a sense of, "Hey, I want these basketball shoes. I want you know this, you know this or that." And they're like, "Well, that's actually not what we want to give you. We want to give you faith and education. Those are the two things that we really value." And so that was communicated in lots of different ways um, growing up. And in retrospect, I'm really grateful. Well, I was about time, to say, yeah, 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 I was about to say that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> those are things that you realize later in life from a mature perspective versus like, mom, I really want those cool exactly. shoes. <laughs> what, um, on your end, you know, sports, what were some of the things that you were into growing up, especially there in the DFW area? So, yeah, I love sports. Uh, I played um, basketball and volleyball on the swim team and uh, really enjoyed football. My dad, who was a physician, uh, kind of said you can't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go in for the tackle football. I was very upset about that. Uh, again, in retrospect, I see some some upsides of that. But uh, but I really enjoyed sports. Um, I went to a camp called Kinnikuk growing up, which is a kind of a sports camp in the in the Ozarks, and loved that. Had a great experience uh, with that. And then I just really enjoyed. Have, I had some great friends uh, that I developed at my high school, St. Mark's, in, in Dallas, and. Uh, spent a lot of time with them and um, uh, really enjoyed uh, reading. Uh, C.S. Lewis became kind of a big author that I uh, enjoyed and continue to enjoy to this day. And um, so, yeah, we had a pretty pretty diverse uh, set of interests. Um, Give me one, whether it's a favorite tradition or even a favorite quote, but just from your parents. Hmm. Could be a life lesson too. What, yeah. Um, keep it so broad. I had a. I had an interesting experience. Um, my parents were both good students growing up, and I had gone to uh, a middle school and just had transferred to this uh, kind of very rigorous private school. It was eighth grade, and um, school had become pretty easy to me for most of my life. And when I transitioned to this school, this private school, uh, it was incredibly challenging. And I was working harder than I ever worked before. And my midterm, like middle of the term report card came home, and I was, uh, I think I had a 1.9 GPA. I was failing history. My strongest subjects were math and science. I had D's in math and science. 
and I was mortified. I don't know that I think I maybe hadn't even, you know, had a, a B before that. And so I was just so disappointed. And I took the card to my dad and said, here's my sort of midterm report card. And uh, he looked at me and said, well, did you do your best? I said, yeah, I really did. He said, this is my favorite report card that you've ever brought home. Keep it up. It'll click. And uh, that I never forgot that. That really stuck with me. And um, I think that was part of his kind of real ethos that, um, you know, your calling is to be excellent. And if you're coasting by and doing well, I don't really love that. And if you're working your tail off and the results aren't there yet, that's okay. But uh, I really want to see the consistent effort that you're really doing your best. So nice. that, that was a that was yeah. I must say, especially for parents in general, to have that sort of a a broader, more long term view of hey, you know, it's it's a difficult moment, but instead of trying to you know kind of beat you down, encourage you, and say, are you giving it your best? That's yeah. what we're looking for because eventually you'll break through that wall and it'll click. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, in the moment, that's tough as a parent to. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> what? Okay, so talk about college, and then let, let's start tra- kind of transitioning, obviously, to what you're doing today. But talk about college and kind of where you started to realize that your your heart was kind of in not only law but especially in kind of this field of of human trafficking. So yeah, I went to undergrad at Baylor and had a great experience there, and um, and really. Uh, it was when I started grad school at Harvard, I started traveling more in the developing world um, with some other students there. And that was when I first came across uh, human trafficking. And it came to me in the form of, a, of one particular case. Uh, there was a 12-year-old girl whose name was Joy T, who lived in rural India. And her family had sent her to the big city for the summer to earn some money. And so she goes and she finds a job in the restaurant, washing dishes kind of in the back and earns her some of the money. And now she's getting ready to head back from her, from this big city to her rural village where her parents are. Well, to do that, she's got to catch a train from Victoria Station in Mumbai to her village. Well, Victoria Station is one of the most chaotic and crowded train stations in the world. And so she's having trouble finding her train. And a couple of older women approach her and say, hey, you know, are you doing okay? And she says, well, I can't find my train. And they said, well, where are you going? And she tells them. And they said, well, we're actually on that same line. We'll just show you where it is. We can, we can walk over there together. And so she's relieved to have these, these uh, women looking out for her. And they get on the train. They start chatting. They have some tea. And it turns out the tea is drugged. And so uh, Joy Tea is knocked out cold. And uh, when she wakes up, she finds herself in the th- on the third floor of a brothel in the red light district of Mumbai, where these two women have sold her for what we now know was the equivalent of about 250 American dollars. Wow. And so from that point forward, he, the brothel owner says, hey, I paid good money for you. You're not going to make money for me. And uh, she says, I don't want to do that. I just want to go home. And he says, that's not an option for you anymore. Begins to beat her with metal pipes and electric cords. Uh, first customer comes, complains she's resistant, and he uses scalding water on her and uh, and ultimately, at the age of 12, that becomes her daily reality. She's forced to serve a 7 to 12 minute day, seven days a week, in a city with a terrible HIV epidemic. And meanwhile, here are her parents over here at the rural train station, and they have no idea why she's not on the train. They don't know where she is. They don't even know how to begin to look for her. And, um, you know, as I learned about that story, it... Uh, it broke my heart and it also made my blood boil. I just, how do you do that to a 12 year old girl? I, I now have a 11 year old daughter and it's, um, it's just so uh, infuriating to know that someone would do that. And over time learned that her story was replicated on a massive scale around the globe. And to be honest with you, that was actually pretty unhelpful information for me. I felt like learning about the scope of the problem, you know, today there's about 25 million people who are in that sort of abuse and, and modern slavery. Uh, during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade that I was growing up reading about as a kid, there were about 12 million people that were enslaved. Today, there's about 25 million. So it's more than doubled. More than doubled. And so for me, that was just, um, it actually, I felt myself just kind of emotionally shutting down. I think it, I started to feel this internal cynicism that, you know, I don't even want to hear from the anti-trafficking groups that are working in this space because whatever you do, it's just going to be a drop in the ocean. That's not really going to make a difference. And it's, 
it's hard to put your heart out there if you feel it's it's kind of like you get you know I think because we're created in such a way that we we have compassion where we instinctively draw near to those who are in pain for the purpose of helping them of helping them out of that pain but if we start to believe there's nothing that we can meaningfully do to address that pain then it, it, it's almost like getting too close to a fire that you can't put out you, you're like I just got to back away I'm gonna get burned I, I just can't do it and I felt like that with trafficking I can't afford to put my heart out there if I get too close I'm gonna get burned because I don't really believe that there's anything we can do that will make a tangible difference on a large scale. And that was obviously then and not now, based especially on what you're doing. That's right. And um, I did have this sort of sense that this is kind of what I was supposed to do, and uh, it did change the course of my life. I was ultimately was in a graduate program at Oxford, and I left that program early to go to law school, really to, for the purpose of being equipped with the skills and gifts that I would need to be effective in this space. And then was in the private sector for about five years, and in 2007, transitioned to D.C. to join the Justice Department, which was just creating its first ever human trafficking prosecution unit. Now, this was the first group of federal prosecutors that would have national enforcement authority, work all over the U.S., and focus exclusively on human trafficking cases. And so got to spend almost a decade at the Justice Department working human trafficking cases and really felt like I got to have a front row seat to what trafficking looks like on the ground floor. And that was a very eye-opening experience for us. Talk about what you learned, because I mean, I've had the chance, obviously, to sit down with you in other scenarios like executive lunches and to hear bits and pieces of some of the things that you've uh, been able to learn and, and, and some of the stories. And I think it's, it's really fascinating, but especially when you talk about the ability for, for states and cities and such to, to once, they, once they realize they can put a laser focus on this, like anything, once you, once you kind of make it a priority and you kind of put the metrics and you can grade it, you can find success with it. But you know, really coming in with the resources, the uh, network, the support, that created a little bit of a game changer to be able to build those relationships, but ultimately laser focus on human trafficking, which then led to results. Talk about kind of that scenario and some of the things that you learned in that process. Yeah, as we started looking at the problem on a global scale, what we discovered is that um, trafficking is blowing up. It's, the, it's now the fastest growing crime on the globe, faster than gun trafficking, faster than drug trafficking. And as I spent time with trafficking victims and with traffickers who would plead guilty and walk us through their business model as they prepared to testify against co-conspirators in exchange for reduced sentence, I learned that what really is driving this is money. Traffickers are in it to make money. And for them, it's sort of a, it's just a business decision. For them, they're thinking, I want to make money. Maybe I'll do that through commercial sex, which we call sex trafficking. Maybe I'll do that through some other industry, a hotel, a restaurant, a brick kiln. But either way, I need laborers to help me do it. And I'm either going to use voluntary laborers, that is those who I pay some kind of competitive wage to and who are choosing to work for me because I'm paying them a wage and keeping them happy, or I could use force and violence and actually coerce them to work for me and prevent them from leaving, like the brothel owner with Joy T. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out if there's no real consequence for that, you don't get in trouble for that, then all your labor costs magically get turned into profits. You're just going to make more money. And so what we find is this very predictable pattern, which is that this business of trafficking just explodes wherever the laws are not enforced. It doesn't matter if there's laws in the books. What matters is, are those laws enforced? But the flip side is that once traffickers learn that there's a specialized, say, law enforcement unit that could come in and actually seize their profits and they could lose their money and their business and their family and their freedom and have to go to jail, then all of a sudden it's too risky to use force and violence. I, I'd rather pay a few extra dollars to voluntary laborers than risk losing everything. And so with even a modest amount of enforcement, you start to see these big drops in the prevalence of trafficking. So that was the game changer for me, was realizing, wow, many of these traffickers are only willing to engage in the crime if they know there's no chance they get in trouble for it. And if we bring even a little bit of enforcement, traffickers are going to bail. It's too risky. And back to your point about the fire now, you can shut down a system versus having to go individual by individual by individual necessarily. That's right. So we find that even once you start having a little bit of enforcement, you start getting all these other traffickers that are never in the criminal justice system who go, well, my business model doesn't work anymore. It's too risky to engage in forced labor. So I'm going to shift to voluntary laborers or shift industries rather than risk everything. And that's, that was the game changer for me because it's rare to see that kind of leveraged impact. 
particularly in the developing world or in the philanthropic context, because, you know, my mom is an ophthalmologist, you know, she'll go and she'll do these uh, trips overseas where she'll do cataract surgery on people who haven't seen, haven't been able to see for years. Well, if you have 5,000 patients that need cataract surgery, you've got to do 5,000 surgeries. But here you might have one trafficker who's exploiting, say, 10 victims a year over a period of 10 years. That one trafficker might be responsible for 100 victims over a 10-year period. If you have 100 of those traffickers, that's 10,000 victims that are, are going to be exploited over that 10-year period. Let's say in year one, we just prosecute 10 of those guys. And another 40 bail because they just think it's too risky. Right. Well, now over the next 10 years, you're going to have 5,000 victims that are freed or never have to experience that trauma in the first place, stemming from just those initial 10 convictions. So that was exciting to me, too, is that we don't have to get all the traffickers. That felt overwhelming. But we actually use this word decimate, which literally means to cut by one-tenth. If we get a tenth of the traffickers, we start to see this sort of large drop in the prevalence of trafficking. And to me, that was the game changer. I felt like when I was feeling like I got to back away, what I really needed was tangible hope. Not just that somehow things will be righted in the end. But A is doable, B is doable, C is doable, and it results in significant drops in the prevalence of trafficking. And we've now seen a, pilot, a successfully piloted model that will do just that. And we're now scaling that and bringing that to countries around the world. Yeah, and, and dive in deeper on that because I think when you look at what you're bringing to these other countries, obviously you're bringing best practices, laser focus, uh, the, the metrics and accountability, how to go about fighting, how about how to even go about building the cases to combat it. So share some of those pieces of just when you're walking into a country, how this process unfolds. Well, interestingly, it actually really began here in the U.S. When I was a federal prosecutor, uh, the folks in the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit would travel around the country and we would meet these federal agents and prosecutors who seemed to think a trafficking case would be a really compelling thing to work on, and yet we saw very few cases happening. And we tried to figure out, okay, what's the disconnect? We've got good laws in the books, you've got smart, motivated people, why are we not seeing more cases? And what we found is that trafficking enforcement is actually just a very specialized area of law enforcement and prosecution. You can't do a trafficking case the same way you do a gun case or a bank robbery case. It just doesn't work. Well, that's not that unusual. Ordinarily, if you have a specialized area of enforcement, you build a specialized unit. So we've all heard about narcotics units or homicide units or organized crime units, right, to focus on specialized areas of crime. Well, what happens, a lot of times the way that those units actually get developed is very informal and organic. It might be as simple as, as I walk down the hall and say, hey, Jeremy, you're our expert in organized crime. Can I shadow you for a few cases? And you say, sure, I'm asking you a bazillion questions. Before you know it, we're kind of splitting responsibilities. And now all of a sudden, I've got the hang of it, and we've got a little unit that actually knows how to do this. Well, what happens when in the FBI offices and federal prosecutors' offices around the country, there just is no one down the hall who's ever done this before? Mm. Well, people don't even know how to get started. And no one wants to mess up a case like this, particularly when you've got victims who've been through so much trauma. And so they just weren't happening. So we tried to figure out how do we solve that problem? So while I was at the Justice Department, we helped create this uh, pilot that was really helped engineered by the head of the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit at the time. And uh, what we did is we invited the 94 federal districts to compete for six slots that would participate in the pilot. And in each of those six pilot districts, we would go in and basically do three things. First, we just assign people to be part of a new specialized human trafficking unit. So here's our team, here's our federal prosecutors, here's our federal agents, we're now gonna focus on human trafficking. And then the secondly, we would take those teams and put them through kind of a mini law enforcement academy where we'd walk them through, okay, here are the strategies that we've seen be effective at each stage of the process, from identifying the case to doing the investigation all the way through trial. And then the third thing we do is when they would go back to their home district, we'd pair them up with a member of our national unit, and we just kind of roll up our sleeves and start working cases together. And of course, all kinds of problems would come up in individual cases that you had never talked about in the classroom, right. but now you at least had someone with you who could help you solve those complications and move your cases forward. So we pulled the numbers two years into this pilot, and what we discovered is that those six pilot districts had just hit it out of the park. They had produced more convictions than the other 88 federal districts combined. Wow. So meaning literally more than half the convictions in the entire country came out of those six little pilot districts. 
There's a 114% increase in the number of trafficking defendants charged in the pilot districts compared with 12% in the rest of the world. So we're going, okay, this is working. We're, and honestly, it's not rocket science. This is just how you build specialized skills in any category. It always involves sort of figuring out what's the core knowledge that I need, and then I need to have an extended period of time where I'm basically getting to practice with someone who's done it before. So like my parents who were doctors, the same thing. They'd go to med school and get the core knowledge they needed. But right, nobody goes under the knife after the end of med school. You have this whole process of residency where all you're doing is basically, you know. Like an apprenticeship. Apprenticing you're learning. That's under right. a senior surgeon until right. you can do it on your own. We're just applying that same model to human trafficking enforcement. So that model that we helped successfully pilot is now spreading in the U.S., but where it's not spreading was in the developing world, mm -hmm. where trafficking was blowing up and where 93% of the world's victims reside. So we realized, wow, we, the world kind of looks like this. You've got one part of the world in the West that has 7% of the victims and almost 100% of the specialized enforcement expertise. And then you've got this other part of the world, the developing world, where there's 93% of the victims and almost no enforcement expertise. And over just the last 20 years, we've seen this huge shift in the legislative landscape where we've gone from very few developing countries having anti-trafficking laws to now all of them having anti-trafficking laws. So the laws are no longer the problem. But then it was kind of like, well, we've got laws in the books, but what if nobody cares about enforcing them? What if there's no political will to enforce them? Well, the U.S. government actually in the year 2000 passed a law that created a new office within the State Department that's required to assign a grade every year to every country around the world on how well they're combating trafficking. And if you get a failing grade, then you're subject to economic sanctions from the US. This was tremendous. All of a sudden, now if you're a high level bureaucrat, say in, in Delhi, India, whether Joy T is stuck in a brothel under the thumb of a sex trafficker several hundred miles away, you might not want that to happen, but you're probably not going to lose an election over it. It's probably not going to change your life that much. So it ends up in the, you know, maybe I'll get to it one day pile. But now after this U.S. law was passed, now all of a sudden it, get, it, get moves, it gets moved to the urgent priority pile because it could actually affect my economic relationship with the U.S. So what happens is you start having these senior leaders shouting down the chain of command to the police and the prosecutors and the judges, guys, you have to get this fixed because this is now a problem for me. Right. But the problem was the people at the bottom of the chain are going, we don't That's know how. That's great, but we don't know how, right, yeah. exactly. It, we, there, we've, the State Department's right. We've done zero cases, which means no one here has ever done this before. There's no one down the hall. Actually, the same problem that we were seeing here in the US. And so we realized, wow, until we solve that problem, we can actually throw billions and billions of dollars at, at anti-trafficking and see very little change in the amount of trafficking that's happening. Because if the police and prosecutors don't have the capacity to respond to those incentives, then we're kind of stuck. And right now, those police and prosecutors, and I've met them, you know, many of them showed up for their first day of work and, and someone slid across the counter a uniform and a badge and a baton and said, okay, now your livelihood depends on your ability to go confront the violent criminal element. And many of them received very limited training, if any, in criminal justice enforcement. Well, telling them to go do a proactive human trafficking case is kind of like telling them to go do cataract surgery. I mean, you can incentivize them all you want. You can put a billion dollars on the table. I can't do cataract surgery. I just lack the capacity to respond to those incentives. So we realize that's the last piece. That's kind of the last domino that has to fall before we start to see widespread trafficking begin to fall in the developing world. And now we have a model to actually build that specialized expertise. So ultimately, we left the Justice Department to launch the Human Trafficking Institute really to solve that problem, to take the successfully piloted model that we had helped uh, participate in at the Justice Department, to developing countries that were serious about measurably decimating trafficking, even if it was for purely economic reasons, that's fine, I don't really care why, but lacked access to the model and the expertise to do it. So now we enter into partnerships with these countries really to do those same three things, to help them vet and build specialized units and courts that will make sure those cases don't get stuck in a backlog. We'll prioritize those cases and fast track them through the system. And then we take those teams and we put them through our Global Human Trafficking Academy, and walk them through the core strategies and skills that we've seen to help them be effective at each stage of the process. We just completed that this past October. Then when they go back home to their home country, we hire former agents, former prosecutors who've done these cases before, who move to that partner country 
and start working every day in the same office with those specialized units, helping them build their skills, solve case-related challenges, and ultimately create that kind of accountability and transparency that eliminates corruption risk for that unit. Mm -hmm. So that we don't have to fix the entire criminal justice system. All we actually really need is this one little unit to start pushing cases all the way through the criminal justice pipeline, from police to prosecution to conviction, and create that little bit of enforcement risk that starts to produce big drops in the prevalence of trafficking. And they can become sustainable on their own end too, because then once you train them, you, you teach them how to fish, now they can kind of create the apprenticeship and create more opportunities for themselves. And then your team can go to the next country, the next country, the next country, and now you've got sustainability. Exactly right. So in, so, in some ways, the, the core job of these embedded mentors is to help identify, okay, who are the members of this unit right. who are so hitting it out of the park in terms of leadership and performance and integrity that they can, over time, eventually become the embedded mentors for this unit right. or the next unit. And then, as you say, you end up getting these nodes of self-sustaining enforcement capacity. And then when they can hit their performance benchmarks and handle normal attrition, that partner country is fully funding its own self-sustaining units. So you get all the ongoing benefit of victims being spared and protected from this crime with no additional philanthropic investment. And then with the same philanthropic investment, we can then spread the model to the next country. And then it's just a matter of, well, how many country slots can we fund at once? I think w there's so many layers that are really fascinating. I mean, obviously, the impact you're having is phenomenal. And that in and of itself, I think, is, is top priority, um, really making a difference and, and saving lives. Two is, I think, though, when you look at it from a, you know, lessons that were learned here in the States and now the global impact is phenomenal. When you look at just something that we learned here in the United States that we could take and really be a global benefit, I think that's an important piece of this as well. And I also think just the systematic process, because I think many people, and, and to your point even early on, education, poverty, crime, these things can seem like the big consuming fire that are so big, the Great Wall of China, where one person, how do I ever make a difference? And so to your point, it can be extremely intimidating. But realizing and stepping back and saying, wait a second, there are some things that we can do from a process standpoint that can actually have some very large benefits. But it takes strategy. It takes you also diving in and, and getting your hands dirty and, uh, and relying on others and the input to really kind of figure out, okay, how do I really create systematic change? But then once you do, then you're all in because then you can actually see the fruits of your labor. And it's like now it's not just impacting one or two lives. It's impacting uh, a system where you're creating real change. And then that becomes contagious uh, way beyond your wildest dreams because you're actually seeing big results that you wanted in the first part that was originally keeping you away. So now you're all in. So I just think there's, there's so many layers to what you're doing that to me throughout the years uh, makes it fascinating, especially for listeners who, who think that many things can seem intimidating and, and don't know how to jump in, and, and yet they can jump in and make a big difference. Two is the things that they're learning here, uh, even if it's within their neighborhood, can have a ripple effect and transform a state, a city, a nation, uh, a, a world. I think that's a cool piece of this as well. Yeah, we talk about that kind of as a team that I think one of the, I used to think that the front lines of the battle against human trafficking was actually led by by my friends in the FBI, my FBI agents who would go in and actually do the raid and get the victims out. But I really don't think that anymore. I actually think the front lines of the battle against modern slavery is waged on the battleground of tangible hope. I think as long as people feel as I did, you know, a number of years ago, that there's just nothing that can really be done, that this is just such a big problem and so complicated that whatever we do will be a drop in the ocean, we just won't see any progress because we've all got to turn the, we got to change the channel. We got to back away. It's too, it's too much. And so we talk about this as a team that actually one of our core jobs is stewarding tangible hope that we've actually now have the answer to the questions I was asking 20 years ago of, can we actually measurably decimate trafficking? You know, and back then it was an, it was, there were a lot of huge obstacles. You thought, wow, you know, there's not laws in the books. Now there are. Thought well, even if there's laws in the books, don't we need a massive cultural or moral change in the way that the entire country sees women or values values these victims? And that felt like impossible. But now we've created economic self-interested reasons for countries to do the right thing, even for their own self-interested reasons. And then it was well, but now you got you got corruption. Corruption is is tough. Until you fix corruption, the whole system, you're not going to see any progress. 
Well, now I realize, actually, we don't need to do that. We don't need to fix the entire system. All we need is this one little unit to start pushing cases all the way through, and that a little bit of enforcement produces these big drops in the prevalence of trafficking. And to me, that, you know, pushing through those massive overwhelming obstacles and, and seeing, oh, here it, there is tangible hope, mm -hmm. and we've seen this model work, and now we're just scaling it, that to me is actually where the battle for human trafficking will either come to uh, a dramatic crescendo where we'll start to see widespread slavery fall on a large scale around the globe, or we'll remain on the sidelines and feel stuck in this sort of despair and, and cynicism where I was before. And so part of what I think our job and even our job, the job of listeners who are engaged in this is actually saying, wait a second, let's dig in and understand why this is exploding and what the models are that are measurably doing something to reduce trafficking. And that's actually, that's where I've seen just this incredible excitement come on. You see yeah. people who have gone like, wait a second, we're gonna have a dinner about human trafficking. Isn't that kind of dark? And by the end, the hosts are trying to like kick them out. They're like, I gotta go to bed, it's midnight. Because people are just, they, once they find that that there is hope. That there's hope. Right, absolutely. It changes things. Because, yeah. you know, otherwise you're stuck in this terrible place where part of your heart is saying, we've got to get Joy T out. This is so wrong. We've got to stop this. And the other part of your heart is saying, I don't really think we can do anything. It's just going to be dropped in the ocean. And that's just that terrible, heart-rending experience of, of being pulled from both sides. It's just so painful. And to have that resolved by seeing, like, no, there's tangible hope that we can actually make a difference is a game changer. Thank you for listening to our Changemakers podcast. City Current is a catalyst of over 100 partners joining forces and funds to power the good through free events, positive media, and philanthropy. If you like our efforts and are looking to power the good with us, follow us on social media at City Current and check out our website at citycurrent.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. And if you know a changemaker, please reach out to us and let us know so we can consider them for a future show. The Changemakers podcast is brought to you by Datafacts. Datafacts is a national provider of trusted background screening products such as criminal searches, drug screening, employment and education verifications, and post-hire monitoring to employers of all sizes. Datafacts is one of the few background screeners that holds the stringent National Association of Professional Background Screeners accreditation. They're certified by the WBENC as a 100% women-owned business and in 2018 were ranked by HRO Today's Baker's Dozen Customer Satisfaction Ratings as one of the top background screeners in the nation. Visit datafacts.com to learn more and make sure to mention the Changemakers podcast. And now back to the show. That's why I love I love this podcast. I love all the media that we have a chance to share these positives because to your point, it really is about hope. When you realize that all of these things can, you can kind of stick your head in the sand and pretend it all goes away and then you become apathetic and hopeless. But yet when you realize, no, wait a second, one person can make a difference, two people can make a difference. When you start bringing people together and there's hope, amazing things can happen. And the other cool thing too is the information sharing piece of this. I think when you look at St. Jude, which freely shares its research and how that's completely changed the way that uh, children are treated with their pediatric cancer, this is very similar in the sense that you're, you're, you're sharing this information saying, we are trying to create change. It doesn't do us any good if we hold it to ourselves versus no, let's create these apprenticeships. Let's share this information. Let's do anything and everything in our power to share what's working in one place with another so that we can shut down these systems. And I think the information sharing and that kind of free resource of just wanting to be a catalyst is another piece of this that I think sometimes gets overlooked is your ability instead of keeping it close to vest, really pushing it out and, and the energy with that in a good way to everyone freely is important. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why um, having like a real emphasis on data and research has been built into the DNA of the Human Trafficking Institute from day one. I think a lot of the movement in the anti-trafficking space is propelled by anecdote and story and emotion. And those things are important and they are motivating, but they actually don't tend to shape the larger funders that shape the market in the space. And what we realized is we have, although it's, it's not as exciting to fund sometimes and it's, it can be tedious and uh, a lot of work, we have to have data built into what we're doing. And so even in our work here in the U.S., one of the, one of the challenges that we saw is that there just wasn't great data on what was happening right here in the U.S. We couldn't answer basic questions about, you know, how are districts performing? What's the split between sex trafficking and labor trafficking? What are the dominant business models that sex traffickers are using and that labor traffickers are using? 
And so actually just this past year, we set off to solve that problem. We'd been kind of uh, complaining about it for a decade at the Justice Department. Well, we thought, well, let's just put our money where our mouth is and try and solve that problem. So this past spring, we released the first ever federal human trafficking report. This was the first look at every single federal case over a, over a specific period of time that, and, and where we could finally break down a comprehensive look at, okay, here's the highest performing districts in the country, here's the lowest, here are, here's the trends that we see in, in terms of the business models and sex trafficking versus labor trafficking, and we're gonna do this over time. And so the lowest performing districts, I think just by knowing the existence of this report, start to go, wait a second, we don't wanna be on this same spot in the list next year, let's get moving, let's actually try and, and produce some more cases this year. And it also allows us, as you pointed out, to, to bring together, we can now identify literally who are the most productive federal agents and prosecutors in the country and draw them together to say, hey, why is what you're doing working so well? Have you, de have you developed some innovative investigative strategies or prosecution strategies that we ought to be pressing out to the rest of the districts in the U.S. or even to our partner countries in other parts of the world right. so that we can actually take advantage of the learnings and the success that you're producing? And, and so that's been a big emphasis for us as well. And then we've looked at, too, because we built out this database, we can now identify every single federal case as it moves up on appeal. And, and the law of human trafficking in the U.S. is still very young. And so each appellate decision has an outsized impact because all the other appellate courts, when they, reach that, when they come to that decision, look to, okay, what else is out there? So that first decision has a big impact. So we have found, we were asked about a year and a half ago to, to file a brief in the U.S. Supreme Court on a very significant human trafficking case that could have significant implications nationwide. But we just learned about that because we were asked to do it. Now we have a systematic process where we can strategically weigh in in very specific cases to help shape and develop the law as it grows up so that we can ultimately uh, produce a uniform and effective human trafficking law in the U.S., and then every case that happens in the U.S. is sometimes, in some ways, a crystal ball as to what will happen in other countries, just because we've done more enforcement here in the U.S. so far than many other countries. So a lot of the evidentiary issues that bubble up in our appellate courts are the issues that will be bubbling up in courts in Belize and Uganda yeah. and South Africa in a number of years. And so it kind of gives us a, a forward look, a crystal ball look at what, what's likely to be happening you know, years from now in some of these other contexts. So you're one of those, we could go on for hours, and this is ex extremely fascinating in so many different ways. Um, talk about, though, because I do want to do kind of a lightning round where we talk about just fun stuff that's, you know, just favorite books and how you like to relax, and so we'll do that in here in a second. But as we wrap up, you know, obviously for 2019, give us some of the things that you're excited about for 2019 in terms of goals, objectives, new programs, new countries you're working with. What, 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 what's exciting to you about 2019? Well, we've had a year of just tremendous growth. So we've uh, almost tripled in size in terms of our staff size in the past year. Uh, so we've got a lot of new folks, uh, a lot of some great senior people that came on board. We had the former head of Homeland Security's Victim Services Unit who led their work agency-wide, who's now on board as our Director of Victim Services. Uh, the head of the FBI's Anti-Trafficking Unit globally has come on as our Director of Law Enforcement Operations. Got an incredibly gifted policy person that's come on as our director of government and corporate relations. So we've had some great senior people and some junior people come on. Our team has grown a lot, and so we're we're now in this unique position to really scale up our in-country teams and in, in our two partner countries, Uganda and Belize, right now. So just this year, both Uganda and Belize committed to form these brand new specialized units, uh, and they're now starting to work some cases. And so we'd love to hire these embedded mentors that are gonna go in and work with them and, and help move their cases forward. So that's a big deal for us, and we wanna measure that from start to finish. Uh, another kind of big thing that we're excited about is seeing, um, we've, uh, what we found is that, you know, we're, I'm gonna be doing this hopefully for the better part of my career, but that's, it might take more than that. And we've realized we really need to help develop the next generation of future leaders in this space. So we formed the Frederick Douglass Fellowship, which is a fellowship designed to identify really the future leaders in the human trafficking space. And so we have third-year law students from some of the top law schools in the country, including, I guess, right here in this state, Vanderbilt, that have uh, applied. And, and we were so overwhelmed with applications that we ended up just selecting in our first year the top 10% of applicants 
and they're incredibly gifted. And they're people who, who you know, are probably going to be hiring us in a, in a few years. But they have, they have uh, said, okay, well, we're, we want to we do research in this space, but we don't know how to get started. And we'd love to be mentored by a senior leader in this space, but they're getting like 100 requests a year. And we would really love to be able to be a voice on our campus to help others understand what's going on in the human trafficking space, but we don't have the authority or platform to do it. So we said, well, actually, we might be able to help you solve that problem. So we created this fellowship, and these students spend their academic year doing 10 hours of research a week on our projects, and then we pair them with a senior human trafficking leader. So we have the general counsel at the FBI who's one of our mentors, or the head of litigation in the human trafficking prosecution unit at the Justice (laughs) Department. Um, uh, So we've got these incredible leaders who are pouring into them over the course of the year. And then each of them puts on on on-campus sort of speaking event or advocacy event together, and we help them do it. So we had a couple of former trafficking ambassadors who went to Stanford and Pepperdine last year, where a couple of our fellows were, and uh, we've got a really neat slate coming up in the beginning of 2019. So I'm really excited to see, we're now in the second round of the Douglas Fellowship, how these Douglas Fellows mature and and ultimately, you know, 10, 15 years from now, they're just gonna, there's just going to be an army of Douglas Fellows that are are going to be in the top uh, and most influential spaces in law and government and policy and philanthropy and private sector. And I think that's where we're going to see also this sea change. When you begin to take on an issue like this at that formative stage in your life, as I did, you know, 20 years ago, um, you start to see real transformation down downstream. And that's one of the big ideas that we've talked about as a team, that we want to actually be doing, uh, operating at the root of the problem, looking at how do we not just build gardens, but orchards? How do we actually do things that are going to be, they're gonna, they might take longer, but the fruit that's produced from them is lasting, and it's just harder to, to tear down. Well, let's let's switch over and talk about uh, kind of just it's it's a lightning round. There's no special music or you know insertion, whatever. But uh, it's just short answers, short questions, or short questions, short answers, um, and then we'll wrap up with contact information and getting people plugged in. But uh, first one is give us a recent book you've read. Uh, so I just finished uh, reading the Narnia Chronicles with my kids and with uh, uh, a friend, one of our friends, and that's been so rich to re-enter into the, into that great series. I really recommend it. Reading it as an adult, if you haven't read it since you were a kid, so rich. It's been really fun to read that out loud with them. Very cool. What uh, recent movie or TV show? Uh, we just watched The Family Man, which is one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's an old movie from 2000. Um, with uh, Nicolas Cage and Taylor Leone. I'm not necessarily a, a, typically a Nicolas Cage fan, but in this particular film, it's a really beautiful film that's uh, kind of off the beaten path, but it's really a fun film to watch over, over the Christmas holiday. All right, nice. What, uh, what do you like to do to relax? So for me, I really uh, I love being in places of great beauty. So um, often that's the mountains for me or being out in the water. Uh, those, are, those are times where I really... Uh, those are kind of just soul-restoring times for me. So I really enjoy that. Give us something. It can be like a favorite place to visit or a thing to do with you and your family. So just about a year ago, uh, we had a friend who is uh, working at a private school on the eastern shore, and he uh, he loves to sail. And so he invited uh, me and my kids out to, uh, to go sailing with him, and he's kind of taught us something about sailing. And that was just so fun to get to be on the water with them. And he gave my kids some real responsibility to do stuff in the boat. And they just loved that. And that was really fun. It was beautiful to be outside, great to be out on the water, and to actually learn a skill about how to, how to Absolutely. sail. Absolutely. Did they have to do like the drumming or any of that kind of stuff? Or were they good? No, they were good. They're nice. Good. Yeah, nice. They loved it. What, uh, where's a, a favorite restaurant? And it doesn't have to be even where you live. It can be anywhere you travel. So we're, give us some favorite places to eat. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, there is a, uh, I, I've, I always love steak. It's, what, it's one of my favorites. I don't get to have it a ton, but there's a, one, of, uh, one of my dearest friends, uh, a few of my dearest friends um, took me out for my birthday to Bob's Steakhouse in Dallas, which was uh, just a treat. I hadn't eaten there in probably 20, 25 years. And uh, it was 
just buttery goodness. It was so good. I loved it. It was just amazing. So that was a great treat. <laughs> so you're talking, you're talking about like, the, did you do the, the stockyards and all the stuff in Fort Worth and do yeah, like the, kid, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even fun, riding yeah. the mechanical bulls and all the cool stuff there. I mean, there's so many just kind of, I don't know, just traditional things, spaghetti warehouse in downtown yep, Fort Worth and all right, those types yeah. of places. That's good. Nostalgia. All right. So um, <laughs> give us a, a favorite place on your end in terms of where you've been able to travel. Give us maybe uh, one or two favorite places, other countries, cities, mm-hmm. where are some favorites for you? So I got to spend some time in South Africa right after law school. I spent uh, some time working with their national prosecuting authority. They're just starting to think about trafficking and I got to do that right after law school. And just fell in love with South Africa as a country. It's just a beautiful country, um, such terrific people, and the, the history is so rich there, and it's also just a place of great physical beauty. Driving along the garden route uh, uh, and, and seeing um, some of the great beauty of Southern Africa was just very uh, inspiring and beautiful to me. So I, I really enjoyed South Africa. It's one of my favorite places in, uh, that I've traveled. Favorite quote or inspirational message, something that you uh, either, I don't want to say live by, but just something mm. that, that kind of drives you? Uh, this is something we talk about as a team a lot, too. We, we talk about this idea of physical presence matters. That um, thing, even though we're in a digital world and there's a lot of efficiencies that can come from that, there's still something incredibly powerful and something different that happens when you're physically present whether it's in your life as a parent or in your marriage or in your work, just showing up when we show up on the ground, um, things really begin to move. And so that's just kind of one of our, uh, kind of our core um, uh, mottos or emphases at the Human Trafficking Institute and that I sort of apply in my personal life as well. I just find that physical presence really matters and so that becomes a big emphasis of what we try and do. So that's a great life lesson Mm -hmm. in and of itself. Um, what do you hope, and I know this is you're something that you're working on every single day, but what do you hope your legacy is with your family and, and them seeing you and how much you're pouring in and the difference you're making, but, but really just in general, what do you hope your legacy is, especially within the space of the human trafficking work that you're doing? Hmm. You know, one of the things I talk about with my kids a lot is what it means to have courage. And courage, we talk about, my kids could have told you this when they were three or four, um, courage means doing the right thing even when it's hard and um, and you know that's what that's my prayer for them is that they will they will become uh, uh, a young man and a young woman of courage and that they will be aware of those who are hurting or being left out or uh, are being picked on and that they will have the courage to stand up for them and intervene for them uh, I think they've both been given gifts of leadership and we talk about that that's that's a gift to serve um, not to take and we want them and so I want them to be um, active and using their gifts to serve others and to protect others from um, from abuse and so that's the sort of one of the legacies that I would love to see my children carry forward and a legacy that we would hopefully carry forward uh, in the human trafficking space but in the when it comes to the human trafficking space in particular I think you know one of the things that can sometimes be lacking in the nonprofit sector, which is a new kind of a new space for me, is just having incredible focus and clarity about what it is that you do really well, developing that expertise, and then partnering with others that are equally focused and operationally disciplined on what they do well, and then collectively kind of providing a holistic response to human trafficking. I find there are many organizations that that. Um, purport to be or aspire to be holistic and I think that can sometimes be a euphemism for being unfocused and what we want to do is be focused uh, with incredible rigor on this is the one thing that we do really really well we know how to build these units we know how to stop traffickers we don't know we're not the best experts in aftercare we're not the best at um, at doing awareness campaigns but we want to focus on this and then partner with others that are equally operationally disciplined and focused on doing what they do well and have developed the expertise to do that really well. Nice. Well, the, the last question is always the easiest. Easiest is just website, social media, your email, phone number. How should we get in touch? Especially when it comes to the work you do, obviously financial contributions to underwrite your efforts, extremely important. Um, the, the knowledge and research and awareness is a huge piece of this as well. So maybe maybe do that. Tell tell listeners, one, how we can help, and then two, obviously, where we can go to access that information and, and to be able to engage to help. Yeah. 
I think I think what one of the ways to uh, to help most, or one of our biggest needs, is sort of the especially in this first round, the financing to go out and scale this up and make sure that we don't lose speed. You know, it's it's sort of like in the for-profit sector, speed really matters. Being able to, to get your product to market quickly and produce results quickly really matters. The same is true in this space. We want to uh, get produce the data, but we want to really be able to not have our operational progress hampered by just a lack of funding. And, uh, and what we found is that you know, it is more expensive on the front end to build a self-sustaining human trafficking unit than to say build a shelter. But as we look at the pricing over time, you know, it's that initial capital investment spares so many people from trafficking down the line that you end up with massive philanthropic savings on the back end to say nothing of a life spared from that trauma. So that's probably one of our biggest needs. And we do have actually a, a really generous family who has, um, uh, has is inviting others to participate in partnering with us by offering a half a million dollar matching grant. And so that's a, a really neat opportunity to double your impact. Uh, and so that's a, that, that would be like sort of a big uh, need. I think another big need is to actually understand and share the tangible hope around this because that's what keeps people on the sidelines. And when people see the tangible hope, you don't have to work to be engaged because you're already excited about it. And um, we have created a, um, a website for the Institute. It's traffickinginstitute.org. Uh, uh, so it's traffickinginstitute.org is our website. And then there's a separate website that we've created just as a gift in a sense to the, to the rest of the world where we're trying to create kind of the premier global hub for human trafficking resources, information, and data. And it's called traffickingmatters.com. And so there you'll find these sort of great one-page updates on here's the latest case that's happening, here's the cast of characters, here's the drama in the case, here's the issue at stake. And in one page, you can kind of get a snapshot of, okay, this is, this is what's actually happening. We've got all the sort of major reports, all the major research, they're all, instead of having to go to find 12 different websites where the reports are buried, we've actually just collected all of those and put them in one place. And so that's a great hub for getting more information about what's happening. Uh, and then we'd invite you to think about um, to the, the opportunity to get regular updates on our progress. I think that's a way to kind of really be engaged because trafficking is a hidden crime. It's very easy to hear a podcast like this and think, wow, that's really compelling. And I could just very easily just never think about it again for a couple of years, not because of any ill intent, but just because life gets busy and I don't see it. There's not a visible reminder of it. So getting sort of a, a regular update by email is just a it's a it's a health, healthy discipline to say hey I'm not going to push this off my radar I'm actually going to engage the tangible hope and I might need a little uh, gentle reminder to think about that and this is a nice way for me to kind of continue to be engaged and c to continue to experience that tangible hope of being a part of making a difference in this space. Nice. Well, see, I told you, listeners, you were in for a treat. So much knowledge. Um, Victor, I greatly appreciate all you're doing and appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipsmith Pitts Insurance and Datafacts. To learn more about our guests and to share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com and follow us on social media using at citycurrent. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small, and act now. Be a change maker.